Well, thank you so very much, praise team. And, and that was a wonderful quartet that we heard today, wasn't it? Uh, I don't think we've ever heard the four of you sing together like that. And, and that was very much of a blessing. And so uh, thank you for serving us today. The very last sermons that I preached in 2013 were preached at the Marquette Prison. Now, I preached three times every three months in the prison. I preached twice back-to-back in level one. And then once every three months on Thursday night, I preach in level five. Now, level five is far more challenging. Uh, The service is less organized. We have no... Uh, musical instruments, it's Randy Gilbertson, myself, and the prisoners singing. And uh, the leadership in level five is also weaker than we experience in level one. Now, if you know anything about level five, you know that it is the tightest security in the prison. Uh, Men eat in their cells. Uh, They have no yard time. And there is very little socializing time that they have. Now, when I was there last November, I was so upset by something that occurred that I was not sure that I wanted to go back. Uh, Several men in the back of the service, uh, just about 15 feet from me, uh, were talking, laughing, and joking uh, the entire time that I was speaking. And finally, I was so disturbed by this that I just stopped. I mustered all the courage that I could get in a place like that, and I rebuked them and asked them to stop talking. Uh, One young man continued. I have no idea how old this young man is, but he he looks to me uh, like he's just a kid. And you think to yourself, what is it that you have done at your young age that you would be in a place like this? And so he kept talking, so I just stopped. And I stared him down until he quit talking. I thought to myself that evening, here you men are in the worst place you could possibly live in Marquette County. You are here because you deserve to be here based on the sins that you have committed. I am here uh, preaching to you the word of life that could set the captives free and you are talking, laughing, joking, whispering so that I have to speak above you. What in the world is wrong with this picture, I thought. And I seriously wondered if I was going to go back to level five again. Then the service ended. And something happened that totally surprised Randy Gilbertson and myself. I was scheduled again for the month of January. And so 10 days ago, uh, because of what happened at the end of that service in November, even though I was unsettled, I went back. And something again continued that had been a surprise at the end of that service during this service. 
And as a matter of fact, it was the best service in level five that I have ever participated in. Now, what happened? Well, what happened is related to the Beatitudes that I want us to look at this morning in our message. This morning, I want us to come and look together at Beatitudes number one and two in our Bibles. And I'm going to ask that our PowerPoint will be brought up on the screen this morning so that we can look at them together and see what God has for us this morning. And so, Eric, if you would bring that up for us this morning, I'm going to invite us to turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, and I want us to look today at the very first two Beatitudes. And this morning, what I want us to see is that the two Beatitudes we're going to look at have to do with the beginning and the continuing of our relationship with God. Now what I'm going to do is tell you what happened with that young man, that kid, when we get to the close of the service today. But what happened to him, if it is real, is what must happen to each and every one of us in our relationship to God. And so if you would, take your Bibles, opening to Matthew chapter 5, and let's notice how Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount. He says... Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now listen to me this morning. This is the starting and the continuing point of every person's relationship with God. Let's look first of all at the first beatitude. And here is the meaning of this beatitude. Only self-confessed spiritual beggars receive God's eternal life. Let me ask you this morning, is that the way you see yourself? Do you see yourself as a spiritual beggar? And have you come to the place where you confess that about yourself? Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now the word that Jesus uses here is the word for beggar. He is not just talking about somebody who is poor, but someone who is so poor that they must beg in order to earn a living. This morning I want to show a beggar from India on the screen so that all of us will get the picture that Jesus has in mind. That's what Jesus is describing. Of all the pictures I could have chosen, I chose this one so that no one could dismiss this man as a lazy good-for-nothing. It is very obvious that he is a cripple. He has no strength, no skills, likely no education, no earning power. People like this were all over the place in Israel in Jesus' day, as they are in India today. And when Jesus chose this image as the very first beatitude, it would have shocked His disciples. And it shocks us today, does it not? In fact, if you are like me, you want this image on a Sunday morning removed as quick as possible. 
And you're saying to yourself, move on, pastor. This is a very uncomfortable image for us in a very comfortable church on a Sunday morning. Now, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is illustrating the spiritual with the physical. Uh, He is not commending poverty. Uh, He is not saying there is anything inherently good about having nothing. But what Jesus is doing is he is illustrating our spiritual condition before God with a physical image. As we see this man physically, so this is how God sees us spiritually apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is how we are to view ourselves spiritually in the eyes of God if we are to receive eternal life. Now I want you to notice this with me. Because of our sinfulness, what Jesus is saying is we have nothing to make ourselves acceptable to God with. We are without merit of any kind. We stand before God, helpless before Him, and we can do nothing to change our situation. Isn't it easy this morning to see how desperate this man is materially and physically? I mean, we look at this and it's undeniable. But what happens is our pride blinds this to us in our own lives spiritually so that we end up denying who we are and what we are. If Jesus could show us what our hearts look like before God, this would be the image. This is what God sees when He looks within us and sees our spiritual condition. Now I think we can begin to see then why Jesus says this must come first if we are to enter God's kingdom. You see, unless we admit the truth about ourselves, we'll never come to God for grace. Nothing keeps us from God and walking away from God like human pride. It is the greatest problem that any of us has. And so Jesus begins this way by saying, Blessed are those who recognize they are spiritual beggars because He wants to destroy our pride. He wants to crush our inflated view of ourselves. Because it is only then that we will turn to Jesus for forgiveness, eternal life, and entrance into His family. It is interesting when Jesus says here, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The expression theirs has the idea of theirs alone. Jesus is saying, these are the only ones who receive eternal life and enter into God's kingdom. What Jesus is saying is there's one way, there is no other way. We must all come to God like this as self-confessed spiritual beggars. But let me add one more thing. 
This view of ourselves is not something that ends when we become Christians. Did you notice it does not say, Blessed are those who were poor in spirit. Blessed are those who what? Are poor in spirit. This is not something that once we become Christians... We leave behind us. Yes, we've been washed. We've been cleansed. We have been forgiven, given eternal life, made the children of God, redeemed. All God's people said, yes. But we continue to have an old fallen nature. And that old fallen nature is still willful, self-serving, and rebellious. And the Bible says we continue to need to see our needy and dependent condition so that we will come to Jesus daily for grace, for truth, and for strength. I want you to look with me for just a moment at these words that Jesus once said. Look at these words. You say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Now, if I were to ask you, who did Jesus say this to in Revelation 3? You know that he said it to a church. He said this to professing Christians in the church in a town in Laodicea. And here's what happened. They had forgotten who they had been, and where they had come from. So now they had become complacent, self-sufficient, proud, and they had actually shut Jesus out of their lives. In fact, Jesus went on to say this to them, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open the door to me, I will come in to him, and I will eat with that person, and that person will eat with me. Jesus said that to people who had forgotten where they had come from, who they were. He said that to people who were not sitting outside the church, but people who, had, who were sitting in the church who had begun shutting Jesus out of their lives. And I know this very, very true. Unless we continue aware of our own spiritual neediness, we will do the very same. And so when we come to understand what it means to be a self-professed spiritual beggar before God, whether we are an unbeliever and need to come to see that for the very first time, or a believer who needs to recognize this is not something we leave behind us, but it's a continuing reality in our life. 
making us aware of how much we need the Lord Jesus. I want to put a statement up on the screen this morning. You will probably never guess who said this. When I saw it, it amazed me. Let me read it for you this morning. Because it is so meaningful. Whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good. Above all, that we are better than someone else. I think we may be sure that we are being acted on, not by God, but by the devil. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or you see yourself as a small, dirty object. It is better to forget about yourself altogether. When I saw who said this, it astounded me. C.S. Lewis said this in Mere Christianity. Here was a Cambridge scholar, a man whose books are still read and studied to this very day. And yet he understood the ongoing need to see himself as a spiritual beggar needing the grace and mercy and truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to say to us this morning, this is the only safe attitude for any believer in Christ, because it keeps us close to Jesus. This is what keeps us dependent upon Him and recognizing our need of Him. It is the only safe attitude for us, for it drives us daily and regularly to draw upon Jesus, who is our only source of strength and hope. He is the one that we need. And so Jesus begins by saying, here's the first step in anyone's relationship with God. Here is the ongoing attitude that we have that only self-confessed spiritual beggars receive God's eternal life. Let me ask you this morning. Have you seen yourself this way? What an incredible thing to think that Jesus would start His sermon this way. And yet he must start here, because it's the truth about every one of us. Let's look at the second beatitude this morning. Second beatitude is this. Only those brokenhearted over sin find God's comfort and forgiveness. Only those who are brokenhearted over sin find God's comfort and forgiveness. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now all of us at one time or another have seen a Middle Eastern funeral like this one on the screen in front of you. 
The grief and sorrow in a funeral like this is overwhelming. In Jesus' day, funeral processions like this were seen very often on the streets. And what the Jews actually did was they hired professional mourners to express the grief of the family. So just like we see in the Middle East today, as they carried the coffin through the streets of the city, there would be loud wailing and crying. There would be shrieking as these professional mourners would express the grief of the devastating loss of the family. But it's very clear here in this second beatitude that Jesus was not talking about mourning over death, but mourning over sin. Now let's be very careful here. And let's understand that Jesus is not advocating doom and gloom. He's not advocating being long-faced Christians. In fact, most of the time, Christians will be the happiest, most joyful people that are in the room. But there is one area where we will not be this way. And that is in the area of sin. And we will especially not be this way when it comes to our own sin. In fact, when it comes to our own sin, we will be the way James described it in his letter. Listen to how he described Christians and how they respond to their own sin. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. So instead of taking sin lightly or passing it off, uh, we are grieved and broken by sin. In fact, do you know Christians should be harder on themselves than they are on others. That's implied in the fifth beatitude. The fifth beatitude says this, Blessed are the merciful. And if you wonder why is the world around us not very merciful, well the answer is people in the world are harder on others than they are on themselves. But as Christians, we see ourselves as God sees us. We know that apart from Jesus, we are spiritual beggars. And therefore, when our sin is painfully made clear to us, we are broken and we are mourning. We are harder on ourselves as Christians than we are on others because we know ourselves far better than we know others. Many times during communion, you will often hear me pray this prayer before passing the elements. You hear me pray in this way, Lord, I'm a sinful man. And you know that about me far better than I know that about myself. And I know that about me far better than these people do. You have heard me pray that multitudes of times. Did you know that's not my prayer? 
I first heard Haddon Robinson pray that prayer before he preached a sermon. He is one of the world's premier preachers. And the day that I heard him begin that sermon in my young 20s with that prayer, I thought to myself, Dr. Robinson, is that if that's the way that you feel about yourself, how could I ever feel any different? And I pray that prayer before communion. That I might never forget who I was and where I came for, from. And how I need to view the sins of my own life. Did you know the Bible tells us that there is a process to mourning? There's a process in the scriptures to mourning. And I want to bring it up on the scripture on the screen for you here this morning because it is found for us by the apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And I want you to uh, turn there with me. And I'm going to ask Eric if he would bring that up on the screen for us this morning. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And I want you to notice with me this process of mourning that should take place on a regular basis in the life of every single Christian. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians that caused them to mourn. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he describes how mourning is to work in a person's life. Let's look at it together. Look with me, if you would, at verse 8. He says, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Here's the very first step this morning in the process of mourning. It is conviction. It is feeling hurt in our conscience due to our sin. And every time that we sin and do wrong, there, there should be a pricking. There should be a voice that speaks to us. And that voice speaks to us negatively. And we hurt because of the pricking of our conscience. It is like taking a needle and pricking the soft part of my hand. And it hurts and it hurts. And conviction is the hurt in the conscience because I have done wrong. Now second in this process of mourning is sorrow. Look with me at verse 9. He says, Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed by us in any way. And sorrow is the inner grieving over the wrong. It is the sense of sadness that we now feel because we have sinned against God and against others. Now notice the third step in, in mourning is the step of repentance. 
And repentance is changing direction and rectifying our wrong with those who have been damaged by it. Look at verse 10, he says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation, and it leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. The word repent means to change the mind. And when we change the mind about our sin, it leads us to changing direction, turning back to God. It also leads us to want to rectify the wrong, the damage that we have done in the lives of others by our sin. Now finally in this process, there's this wonderful experience of forgiveness. And forgiveness is receiving salvation. Or if we are already saved, it is receiving spiritual restoration. Look what he says in verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. What did Jesus promise to those who mourn? He said you'll be comforted. Comforted is a very interesting word. It's a Hebrew word that means to be forgiven or to be restored. One of the greatest uses of the word is Isaiah chapter 40, where the prophet says, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. Speak tenderly to them. Let them know that, that, that their burden is finished and that their sins have been paid for. And Isaiah 40 is one of the great promises of the coming of Jesus. And it begins, comfort, comfort ye my people. And so it then tells us that Jesus is the one who comforts the mourning soul. Now look together with me then at what our Lord is saying. When we deal with our sin in this way, Jesus then promises we will know the joy of His comfort. That's what He's saying. When we go through this process of conviction and sorrow and repentance that leads then to salvation or forgiveness, we know the joy and the comfort of a restored relationship with Jesus and a stored relationship with God. The young kid in level five who I stared down until he stopped talking, when the service was over, He came to me and he said, I'm sorry. 
I was dumbfounded. I was dumbfounded. I said the only thing that I could say to him, I said, I forgive you. I was scheduled 10 days ago again for level 5. I went very unsettled in my spirit. When the men came, sat down, the kid was sitting on the front row. He listened the entire time. I poured out my heart to those men. I said the last time I was here, you spoke in a way that I had to stop and rebuke you. I said, I wonder, do you really want me to come or not? I'm here as a volunteer. I don't need to be here. But I decided to come. After the service, the kid came to me. And he said, don't stop coming. We want you to be here. Now is he becoming poor in spirit and mourning over his sins? I don't know. Only Jesus knows. But if he is, that is worth returning for. That is worth returning for. I will return time and time again if he is recognizing his own spiritual brokenness before God and mourning over his sin. Because for every person, it is the beginning of your first steps towards God. Brothers and sisters, may that happen to you. May that happen to me. May we be self-confessed spiritual beggars. And when we sin, mourn in the way the Bible prescribes. For if that is true of us, Jesus says, you have entered the kingdom of God. And you will know the joy of comfort in your life. It is the starting and continuing place of our relationship with God. Let's bow our hearts together for just a moment this morning. And let's thank God for what He has taught us. As our hearts are bowed before the Lord and 
eyes are closed. I'm amazed that Jesus begins His sermon this way. I can't imagine any preacher choosing to begin this way. And yet Jesus does because He knows it's the truth. And He knows that unless we know the truth, we cannot be set free. And the greatest thing standing in the way of our relationship with God is our own pride. Our own unwillingness to see us as God sees us. And this morning, Jesus has given us heaven's view of you and me. And as we stand before Him, He wants so much to forgive us. He wants so much for us to have His life. But He knows it will never happen until we come as weak and needy sinners. Maybe you're here today and you have never seen yourself in this way and so you have never cast yourself upon the mercy and grace of Jesus. I want to invite you to do that today. If you're not sure where you stand with the Lord Jesus, you can say from your heart to His something like this. Oh God, I'm a spiritual beggar. I have no merit. I cannot change my own heart. I have nothing to make myself acceptable to You. Instead of mourning over the wrongs that I have done, I have laughed over them. I have joked about them. I have dismissed them. But I come to You today. Lord Jesus, I believe that You died for me. I believe that You rose again. And right now, I'm turning from my own way. I'm turning to You. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus, and be my Savior. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus, and be my Lord. Forgive me of my sins. Make me a child of God. And give me the gift of eternal life. Lord Jesus, from this day forward, I will follow you. Thank you for saving me. And then for some of us who are Christians, perhaps we have forgotten who we were and where we came from. And we have thought this image of our fallen heart is something in the past 
that we are to forget and move on from. We have become complacent, self-sufficient, indifferent. Some of us, like the Laodiceans, have shut Jesus out. And Jesus is calling us back to the dependence, the neediness, the awareness of our own weakness before Him. That is the only safe place for any Christian to be. And I would ask you as a Christian just to allow Jesus to do business with your heart. So that all He wants to do in you and through you He can do now. Gracious Lord, thank You for Your wonderful work in our lives. Breaking down our pride, our self-will, our haughtiness, and our self-serving ways. Thank You, Lord, for showing us who we really are and what it is that we need. And thank You, Lord Jesus, for beginning this way so that our proper relationship with God and who He is and what He has done for us and the glory and magnitude and wonder of it would grip our souls and keep us depending upon Him and casting ourselves before Him for His truth, mercy, grace, and love. I pray today, Lord, for some who perhaps are needing salvation, that today, by the Spirit's power, they may have a glimpse of their need and come to Jesus. I pray, Lord, that You will have Your will and Your way in our church because we have allowed You to teach us. I pray for the young man in prison, Father. I ask that indeed he is becoming poor in spirit and beginning to mourn as He ought to. And I pray that You would wonderfully bring Him to Yourself. Thank You for the glorious and wonderful message of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no other hope, no other way. We love You, blessed Savior. For Jesus' sake. Amen.